Bibles now to Mark chapter 12, verses 38 to 40, as we continue to, to slowly make our way through Mark's gospel. I had um, aspirations of kind of speeding things up, uh, if not in this chapter, the next chapter, but uh, as I was planning our time in Mark 13, I decided to slow us down, and so we're actually going to take Mark into next year, into January of next year, and Lord willing, finish then. So we're just, <laughs> yeah, you know. Uh, so we're slowly making our way through, but we will get through by God's grace. And uh, it's been a delightful time here in Mark's gospel. This is our first time in a gospel as a church, and so I think it's entirely appropriate to just slow down and uh, treasure what they reveal to us about the Christ and our salvation in him. As we look at Mark chapter 12, verses 38 to 40, let's take a moment to pray before we jump in. Blessed Lord, you who have, who have caused all the, the holy scriptures to be written for our learning, we ask that you would let us this morning hear them, read them, mark them, learn them, and inwardly digest them that we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Well, our family had the pleasure this past summer of spending a month in a little farm on the, in the Blue Ridge Mountains. We were uh, not too far from Asheville, North Carolina, and one of the reasons that we went to this area is because of all the great hiking uh, within just a, you know, an hour kind of radius from where we stayed. We went hiking as a family almost every single day during that month in, uh, in the mountains and the North Carolina side of the Smokies and the Blue Ridge Mountains there and several national parks. And, and one of the little uh, hidden gems close to where we stayed was this little uh, retreat town called Montreat, North Carolina. It was not far from where we stayed, and there's some wonderful hiking there. But, you know, the first time we went to this area, I couldn't help but feel a little alarmed. Uh, at the very start of our trail, the, the Graybeard Trail is what it was called. It kind of sounded Lord of the Rings-ish, which is what attracted us to it. And, and right at the start of the trail, there, was these, there were these uh, eye-catching warnings alerting us to a potential danger. A prominent sign right at the start of it said, beware, venomous snakes are, and then it said in all caps, very common on this trail. And it went on to describe and provide pictures and provide detailed descriptions of rattlers and copperheads, as well as areas wherein they were more likely to be seen. You know, snakes like to kind of sit and warm themselves on sunny rocks and whatnot. And just this past week, as I was preparing the sermon, I looked at my All Trails app, the review of this trail, and there was a man, young man, who was bit by a, a venomous snake not long after we were there, actually. It was very interesting. And such warnings, as you can imagine, could be somewhat disconcerting for uh, a husband and father who, who just brought his wife and his four young children to this trail. And so out of care for our kiddos, we took some time from the get-go, uh, from the get-go to, to explain this warning. And and, and, and to share with them what the dangers were and to, uh, what to watch out for and, and all of that. And then during the hike, Amy and I were on high alert to the possibility and danger of these, these venomous snakes being on the trail. 
Well, Jesus is giving us something of, of this kind of warning this morning about potential spiritual dangers. On this pilgrimage that we, we, we call the Christian life, we're to watch out for these, these, kind, these spiritual snakes, as it were. We're to be alert to the danger of these snakes hiding in the midst of God's people who are only in it for themselves and who can bite and wound and do such damage to the people of God. Jesus here shows us that these these snakes very well might be those who claim the name of Christ and who would call themselves brother or sister. It could even be those who, who belong to the visible people of God. It could even be those in ministry and leadership in the church. And so we're to be alert to this potential danger and not paranoid. We're not to be paranoid about this danger. We're not to be so guarded that we never trust or entrust ourselves to others, but we're to be alert to the potential danger of these snakes in our midst nonetheless. Recall with me that we're in Tuesday of Holy Week. This is still the same day. I know that can be uh, kind of confusing because we spend multiple weeks in a row, multiple Sundays in a row, and, and this, uh, this tussle Tuesdays we've been calling it, wherein Jesus has been teaching in the, the court of the Gentiles, this public courtyard in the temple area. And he's been teaching. He's been on the receiving end of, of questions from scribes and Pharisees, Sadducees and Herodians and the like, just they're just unloading questions on him, questions meant to, to undermine and antagonize and challenge it. They've, they've just been unloading this clip of theological bullets on Jesus only to have them ricochet aimed right back at them. But then last week, we see Jesus go on the offensive. He handled all the questions in such a way that no one dared ask him anymore, but then he had a question of his own for them, uh, for, for, in particular for the scribes and uh, these these biblical theological experts of the day uh, were asked this question in a way and stumped them and baffled them. And now this morning we find Jesus turn his attention to his own disciples and in the hearing of all the crowd and even these scribes present, he warns his own to watch out for the likes of these scribes, these, these hypocrites, these snakes. And that is what we want to turn our attention to this morning. We're going to read our text now if you'd like to stand with me. The reading of God's Word after reading, we'll give a short exposition of the passage, and then uh, we'll look at four warnings that we need to heed from this passage. But now we will begin by reading it, Mark 12, verses 38 to 40. Let's listen with reverence and joy to the Word of our God. And in his teaching, he said, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces, and have the best seats in the synagogues, and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses, and for a pretense make long prayers, they will receive the greater condemnation. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can be seated. Well, verse 38 begins here by saying that in his teaching he said... And again, we're Tuesday of Holy Week. Jesus is teaching this temple courtyard. And this is actually the, the, the last that we see of Jesus' public teaching ministry in Mark, this chapter here. Uh, after this, we'll see some more teaching from Jesus, but not in a public setting. And what's interesting is that Luke's account uh, of this same teaching in his gospel shows us that, that this teaching was certainly public and it was meant to be addressed to all in some respect, but it was also specifically addressed to his disciples. Luke 
2045, starts this same teaching by saying, and in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples. So this was in the hearing of all the people. The great throng of people who heard Jesus last week were still here, as well as the the scribes that Jesus put the question to last week. They were all present as Jesus uh, addresses his disciples here. You can't help but admire his, his boldness here. But still, his, his boldness and his courage come from a, a, a place of deep care for his own. As he was addressing his very own beloved disciples. These, these are those for whom Jesus is going at the end of this week to, to give his life for. They are those, as the great shepherd, is, they are those that he counts as his little sheep. He cares for his own. And so he wanted to give them a proper warning as he cares for his own. Similar to how we wanted to give a proper warning to our children of the snakes on that trail. He didn't want to see his, his beloved disciples taken advantage, uh, advantage of or led astray by these scribes. And so he gives them this warning. And here's what the warning is. He says, beware of the scribes. Beware of the scribes. And this word translated as beware comes from the word, it just means to see or to look. But when, when it's in the imperative mood and it's followed by a preposition, it's meant to serve as a warning. He's calling his people to watch out for something, to be alert to a specific danger, to watch out. And he tells his disciples to watch out for the scribes. The scribes. Now, now remember who the scribes are. Originally, they were uh, just copyists of Scripture. That's how they got this name, scribe. They were just scribes. They copied the texts of Scripture down for uh, these you know, documents to be passed on to ongoing generations, these documents to be multiplied uh, in Israel. And, and this role, being copyists of Scripture, led to them becoming something of experts in Scripture and the law and theology. And so they went on to kind of, they turned into these authorized theologians and these authorized teachers of Scripture in the day. Uh, Ezra from the Old Testament, a very beloved figure of the Old Testament, he was such a scribe. And, and that's a potentially good thing, isn't it? Uh, what a wonderful gift to have teachers of God's Word. However, as such, they began to to kind of arise to this position of great prominence and respect in Jewish society at the time. And as you might expect, as might happen with any position of respect or prominence, some or many of those who saw after and attained this position seem to have done so out of this desire for accolades and adulation that such people received. And that's the problem. That's why Jesus warns his people against the scribes here. He goes on to explain why he's warning his people against the scribes. He gives this warning... Because of uh, four of their likes in verses 38 and 39, and then two of their deeds or their actions in, in verse 40. Verse 38 there, Jesus says that the scribes like some things. They like some things. And what you might notice about some of these things that they like is that these four likes of the scribes are not even things that are necessarily wrong in and of themselves. In fact, it might not even be wrong to like some of these things in and of itself. The problem is that they like these things too much and for all the wrong reasons. Their desires, their wants, their likes are, are inordinate or, or misdirected. As uh, St. Augustine used to talk about desires being disordered. Their, their likes were disordered here. Their desires were disordered in that they loved these things too much and for all the wrong reasons. These likes, according to Jesus here, reveal the, why these guys got into scribal ministry in the first place. And it's not because they loved God with all their hearts and wanted to be devoted to him and his word. 
They didn't get into scribal ministry because they loved their neighbors and wanted to help their neighbors know God and his word better. They got into scribal ministry because of what it did for them. That's what these likes reveal. So what are the likes? Well, they like to walk around in long robes. Again, there's nothing wrong with that. We all like certain kinds of clothes, and walking is, walking is a perfectly fine activity. And wearing robes in that time and that place was very normal. But these guys would walk around with robes that were particularly long and ornate. They were decked out with these prayer shawls and these showy tassels. And, and this clothing was meant to indicate to others that they were scribes. And it was meant to serve as a way of showing others their position so that others might look at them and notice them and revere them as they walked by. They were show, Essentially what Jesus is saying is they're show-offs. It's like those snakes like to, to hide out on those rocks and sit in the sunny rocks. These scribes, they like to, to put themselves in the spotlight and to be seen by others and, and bask in the glow. They wanted others to notice them because of their dress. They wanted others to admire them for their position. That's the first like. The second like is in verse 38 there. They liked greetings in the marketplaces. And this is in reference to their being reverentially acknowledged when out in public. In fact, it was expected at that time that when one saw a scribe uh, walking down the street or down a path, everyone, with the exception of those who were uh, laborers at, at work at their trade, uh, everyone otherwise were to rise before them as they walked by out of a, a gesture of respect. And then often, those who would rise would then greet these scribes. Matthew 24 or 23, 7 shows us that uh, these scribes loved these greetings in the marketplace where, where others would call them rabbi or father or teacher, these terms of deep respect and honor. Now again, it's not necessarily wrong to rise when certain people enter a room or to, to greet people in terms of respect and honor when you see them. It's not even necessarily wrong to be greeted in such a way. In fact, it's often a good kind of, it's a good thing. I, I just saw my grandmother this past Thursday. And every time I see her, every time she walks into a room, I rise out of my seat and I greet her with respect and affection. And it's right that I do so. She deserves that kind of respect and affection. And, and there's a certain appropriateness to honoring and respecting and greeting certain people in life in such ways. There's, the problem, though, here is that these scribes, they like this respect and these greetings. It was something of a driving motivator for why they sought their positions in the first place. They, they loved the status, the position, the adulation, the admiration, the respect these guys got in scribal ministry, not to exalt God and edify others, but to honor and help themselves. The third like is the best seats in the synagogues. They liked the best seats in the synagogues. So whenever people would gather for, for synagogue worship on Saturdays, there were certain seating arrangements. Uh, all the women and the children were to be seated uh, in the back, and then the men would be seated in the front of the room. And, and in the front, the seating would be uh, ranked in terms of status and importance. And then there were even these special seats at the very front of the room. They were seats that didn't face the same direction as everyone else. Uh, there were these seats, these benches at the front of the room that faced the congregation. And then those that sat in them, their, their backs would be up against uh, this box that held the, the scriptural scrolls. And the prominent teachers would be seated there, uh, probably originally just so that they could arise with ease and address the congregation when they got up to teach. And of course, you can imagine 
uh, such a seating arrangement would have just been practically beneficial to begin with. Those who arise to, to teach might sit toward the front so they don't have to walk through the whole of the building to, to get at the front of the room. But then again, such a seating arrangement, it can become a wicked thing if someone loves the attention it affords them, if they love the public recognition it gives them. And Jesus' assessment of these scribes is that this was the case for them. They liked the best seats in the synagogues with this inordinate desire. And then the fourth and the final like is, uh, it has to do with the best seating arrangement at, at feasts. It's like the, the, the third like there. Just like in the synagogues, these scribes loved being uh, given prominent seating places at feasts and parties and celebrations. The seating arrangements at, at these kinds of events in that culture were a lot more intentional and important uh, than they often are in our day and place. Seating arrangements at parties were planned according to people's status and importance. And these scribes would often have the top seats at such events. And they, again, they loved the attention. They loved the status, the recognition. They loved to feel superior and important. But it wasn't just these four likes. There's also two deeds or actions here in verse 40. The first verse, uh, or the first is that scribes uh, devour widows' houses. Now, this is, this is a particularly shameful condemnation. And the people of Israel were continuously admonished in Scripture to care for uh, what scholars often call the quartet of the vulnerable, widows, orphans, poor, immigrants, the quartet of the vulnerable. Israel's God is, is a God who cares for, for poor and vulnerable people. His own heart for the poor and the vulnerable is what led to him rescuing Israel from Egyptian bondage and slavery in the first place. And the people of Israel's own history, the people of Israel's own history and redemption was meant to give them the same kind of heart for the vulnerable. And yet these scribes, these shameful, despicable scribes, they devoured widows' houses. They didn't care for widows. They devoured widows' houses. They consumed widows' households. It literally says that they ate widows' houses in their entirety. And what does that mean? Obviously, it's not meant to be taken literally. They wouldn't have eaten a widow's house you know, as, as if it were like a gingerbread house or something like that. It's meant to say that, that these scribes had been known to take advantage of widows and their vulnerability. These scribes, you know, they, they weren't like priests who, who received a, a, a salary from their, their temple work. These scribes uh, worked to support themselves or they would have patrons who supported their work. And it seems at times they would, they would seek out these patrons to support their work as scribes. And it, and it furthermore seems that there had been occasions wherein a, a husband of a family would die, a husband and father would die, and the responsibility of the estate and the finances of the family would fall to the wife, the widow, who at that time would not have had much experience in the world of finances and property management and, and all of that. And so these scribes would just kind of slide in there. And they'd garner the financial support of these widows and take advantage of their inexperience and vulnerability. And it seems that there was a pattern of this happening, such excess that these widows' households were devoured and entirely consumed. It seems that they had impoverished these widows by taking advantage of them in their distress. That's the first action Jesus condemns, and rightly so. And then the second action is that they, for a pretense, make long prayers. Of course... Some of the other descriptions, there's nothing wrong with long prayers, not even with long public prayers. 
See Jesus pray long prayers in the gospel. See John's gospel for a very long prayer from Jesus recorded for us there. It's not necessarily wrong to pray long prayers and to do so even publicly, but these scribes, they pray long prayers, Jesus says, for a pretense, for a show. They're ostentatious in their praying. They're seeking to attract attention and admiration. Their prayers are are gaudy and overly elaborate and flamboyant, all to attract adulation and admiration from onlookers for their supposed piety and holiness, not out of a sincere desire to exalt God and edify others with their prayers. And with all this, Jesus offers his ruling on these men. This is what he says. They will receive the greater condemnation. They will receive a harsher judgment. They will receive a more severe punishment. Apparently, in the final judgment, there will be more and less severe sentences. Apparently, in the horrors of hell, there will be greater and lesser degrees of eternal conscious torment. And Jesus is ruling on these men of position and status, these men who know the Scripture so well because of their knowledge and authority and their abuse of their authority. If they don't repent and cast themselves on the mercy of God, their judgment will be more severe. There are four warnings that I want us to consider here in light of Jesus' warning. The first warning issued is, is a warning to the wary and to the all-too-willing. You know, we, as, as we've been reading through Tussle Tuesday, perhaps you've noticed Jesus has not shied away from disputes and confrontation. And even this morning, as, 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 as we look at our text, notice that Jesus calls out a specific group of people, some of whom are present. I mean, Jesus literally he looks around in this crowd, and he sees a bunch of scribes in it, and then he says to everyone, hey, you know who you should look out for? The scribes. It's just very bold, courageous. And Martin Luther once said that a theologian of the cross calls a thing what it is. Theologian of the cross calls a thing what it is. And Jesus does this here. He calls the scribes what they are, snakes, false, hypocrites. And part of what this says to us today is that, friends, there are disputes and confrontations worth having. Jesus didn't shy away from all disputes and confrontations, and neither should we. We live in a time that for... For some, perhaps many, the only wrong thing we can do in this life is telling other people that they're wrong. Because that's not perceived as loving. Loving, according to many definitions today, is this unconditional agreement or approval offered to others. Even without condition. Some of us are wary of disputes and confrontations because we think that it's not loving, but here's the Son of God who is love himself engaging in disputes and confrontation. So perhaps maybe for some of us, our our definition of love needs corrected. It needs to include such encounters as being loving. Apparently, sometimes the loving thing to do is to engage in disputes to confront those in error, to expose hypocrisy and falsehood. Sometimes that's the loving thing to do. Sometimes the most loving thing we can do is tell the plain truth. But then we ought to warn, not just the wary, but the all too willing, because at the same time, some of us might be a little too prone toward disputes and confrontations. I, I, 
I've been in church circles long enough to know that some people's problem is not that they're afraid of controversy. The problem for some is that they love it. They thrive off of it. They crave it. They look for it and try to instigate it wherever they go. And in fact, Scripture condemns that too. Proverbs 20, verse 3. It says, it is an honor for a man to keep aloof from strife, but every fool will be quarreling. There should be a Twitter account that just tweets that out for Twitter every day. <laughs> Titus 3, 2, we're commanded by God to, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy toward all people. And, and, and so part of the danger with texts like Mark 12 and Tussle Tuesday is that people who love quarreling and disputes and controversy can use texts like this to justify their unhealthy love of conflict. And so we ought to keep in mind this warning to the wary and to the all too willing, those who are overly wary of controversy, who are afraid of it, those who shrink back from it or out of fear or out of an ill-defined definition of love, ought to take note of the courage and boldness of Jesus here. But those who love controversy and conflict and quarreling ought to use, ought not use these verses as an excuse for excessive conflict and, and desire for disputes. See, a warning to the wary and to the all too willing. But then we ought not just consider that warning. We ought to consider the warning here for us to watch out and seek to avoid these sorts of people in the first place. This past week, one of my children helpfully pointed out that the scribes are no longer here today. Not these types anyways. And so we don't necessarily need to watch out for them anymore. And that's true. But even though there are no scribes like this today, there are people like them everywhere. And so we ought to apply Jesus's warning and our choice of the company we keep and the churches we join and the leadership we appoint for ourselves. Here's the reality, friends. We ought to be alert to these kinds of self-seeking, self-promoting, predatorial sorts of people. We ought to be on, on alert to those who love position and status for its own sake, who disadvantage vulnerable people to their own advantage. And choosing friends and companions. We should be alert to this danger. And in my experience, when people choose to keep company with people like these scribes, one of two things happen. They either get hurt, deeply hurt themselves, or they become like the company they keep. If you entrust yourself to people like these scribes, you, you could get hurt, you could get wounded, you could get taken advantage of. Proverbs 13, 20 says that a companion of fools suffers harm. I think Jesus is warning his disciples here from keeping company like this partially so that he might save them the harm and heartache that might come. But then even if, even if one doesn't get hurt by, from people like this, they very well might start to become more and more like, like this themselves. Proverbs 12, 26 says, the, the righteous choose their friends carefully, but the way of the wicked leads astray, leads them astray. First. Corinthians 15.33, Paul says, bad company ruins good morals. The reality is that you will ordinarily become more and more like the people you spend time with. You become like what you behold. You, you mimic what you view. It's human nature. That's another reason that Jesus warns his disciples against the scribes. He doesn't want, them, he doesn't want his disciples to become like this themselves. Then there's also something of a warning to watch out for these sorts when choosing churches and church leaders. 
All of us at some point will, will be in a position of choosing church leaders or even new churches. So I'm not oblivious to the fact that many of you will, will move or move on from this church at some point, and, and you'll be in a position of looking for a new church and new pastors. Even those of you who, who spend the rest of your lives here at Veritas, you'll be tasked at some point with appointing new elders throughout the life of this church. And the sad reality is that just as the ostentatious and pretentious scribes were present in the visible people of God in Jesus' day, these types of leaders can be found within the visible people of God today. There are church leaders who seek the office and position because of a sense of status, of, of admiration, of authority over others, of influence. They want to attain the office of elder, a teacher, a pastor, whatever, not because they love God and want to be sincerely devoted to the ministry of His Word, not because they love you and want to help you love and serve Christ, but out of an inordinate desire for the status they might get from it. I saw a video recently, Roy Lowry sent me a video recently of a pastor who was just scolding his congregation in a sermon because they hadn't bought him a nice enough watch and hadn't bought him designer suits and clothing. There are people like this in the world who have the name, who bear the title pastor, but who are snakes. And many of them are, are more clever and subtle than that pastor who scolds his people about watches. Jesus' teaching here would save you the heartache of following and being wounded by such leaders. And some of you are, are listening and you don't, you don't even, you've experienced this. You know this by experience. Some of you have had leaders like this. You've been, you've been hurt by leaders like this. Friends, if, if that's you, please remember and hold to this precious truth with all your heart. That's not the kind of shepherd that Jesus is. He is a shepherd tender in caring for his own. He, he is not a shepherd who seeks status for his own sake. He's a shepherd who laid aside his own prerogatives. He's a shepherd who humbled himself and took on the form of a servant for you. He's the kind of servant who humbled himself for you to the point of death, even the most shameful death on a Roman cross. He's the kind of shepherd who washes feet, not the kind who devours and takes advantage. And furthermore, he's also a divine judge who will bring final justice. Take comfort in that. Take heart in that. For leaders who are, who are self-promoting, who take advantage, who, who devour widows' houses, who wound Christ's sheep out of their own self-gain and self-glory, Jesus says they will receive the greater condemnation. Vengeance belongs to the Lord. Ultimate and final justice will be had, whether it be on the cross 2,000 years ago or on that final day, justice will be done for all of those who use and abuse Christ's sheep. It's guaranteed. And with that warning, for those choosing leaders, there's also a warning here to leaders and would-be leaders. Those who are leaders in the church and those who would be leaders in the church who desire leadership. The scribes here as teachers 
will receive a greater judgment. Jesus says, one of the most frightening verses for any pastor is James 3.1. Brothers, not many of you should become teachers. For you know that those who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Pastors today are like these scribes, are teachers. We are those who, who are tasked with this gift of, of learning and knowing the Word of God so that we might equip and teach the Word of God to His people. But with greater knowledge and with that wonderful grace comes greater strictness in judgment. And, and I really do mean it is a grace it is a grace, the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 3, 8, that this, he says, this grace was given to me to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ. It is a grace. I literally get paid to study the scriptures and pour over the scriptures and then get to talk to you about the most important things in the universe. That's a, that's a grace. That is a grace. I really mean that it is. I count it as a grace that my job allows me to do this. It's amazing, but it's also a weighty responsibility, and it comes with the certainty of stricter judgment. And I've got to tell you, it's a sobering thing to consider this, because listen, I know the other elders here, we know that we're not better than these scribes. We're not better than them. We're prone to the same kinds of sins. We're weak in all the same ways. So much of pastoral ministry involves being in front of people and having this public ministry and having this authority. And sometimes, without you even realizing it, it can be very intoxicating. And sometimes, without you realizing it, you can start to slowly just enjoy some of those public and authoritative parts of it a little too much. And one thing could lead to another, and you might eventually be in it for the uh, salary or for getting up in front of people all the time and, and the position and the authority and people's praise or whatever else. It can happen so easily. So for those of us who, who are pastors or who will be pastors, we need to be aware of this. With those, it's not just out there, with those scribes out there. It's, it's in here. There's one reason that the Apostle Paul said in 1 Timothy 4.16, he tells Pastor Timothy, keep a close watch on himself and his doctrine. So just keep a close watch on your doctrine, right? your teaching, make sure that you're being biblically faithful, theologically sound, but not only that, keep a close watch on yourself. Being able to teach soundly, biblically, that is, that's one qualification for an elders. It's listed among the others in 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1. It's enormously important. But it's not the only one, it's not the only qualification, and it's the only qualification that really speaks to this area of competency. The rest of the qualifications for elders in 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1, have to do with a man's character. And, and, and so we're not only to keep a close watch on our doctrine, our teaching, but on our character. And that's, it can be really difficult. Pastor Dan and I, we just walked around on Thursday for two hours just talking to each other, looking at our lives, opening our hearts, being vulnerable with one another, and trying to borrow one another's eyes to look at, because it can be hard to, to have a, an accurate view of yourself. 
We need this. And so, pastors, we need this. Because we're just men, not unlike these scribes. And apart from the grace of God, we go to the very same place. And so we need to heed this warning. For those of you who would be leaders, I know that there are, are a few of you in this room who are not elders right now, but, but you want to be. You aspire to it. If you at all desire the pastorate, if, if you at all desire to be an overseer in the church and to be one who, in some respect, teaches the people of God and exercises this kind of authority, Paul says in 1 Timothy 3, 1, you desire a noble task. You do. You desire a noble task. It's not wrong to desire it. It's, it's a noble task to desire. It's a good thing to desire. Good. But be careful to discern that you don't desire it for the wrong reasons. Be careful. Watch out. Be, be warned. Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above, above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Don't be undiscerning in your aspiration for the task of overseer and teacher. I'm not telling you to be overly introspective or navel-gazing or, or obsessively scrupulous or anything like that. But be discerning. Consider your motivations. Take, take a good look at yourself. Or, you know, as, as that one theologian said, for every look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. But you need to look at yourself and discern why you want this kind of ministry and leadership. There's a warning here for leaders and would-be leaders. And then lastly, this kind of admonition doesn't just apply to pastors and would-be pastors. It applies to us all. There's, there's a warning for us all to watch our own hearts. Because the reality is we don't need to fill the position of pastor or scribe or teacher or whatever in order to be ostentatious, self-seeking, self-promoting. We've all seen this, just in, in, in ordinary church members. You see this at work on a regular basis. I, I'm sure you get on social media for 30 seconds and you'll find it there. It's not just leaders in the church who are, who are power hungry and who, who can prey upon and take advantage of vulnerable people. You can see this at work. You can see this in homes all over the world. You can see this in, in church members. You might be thinking of examples right now wherein you've seen this, of times you've seen this. Of course, those in positions of authority, can they do carry a, a greater capacity to wound and to bring harm by their hypocrisy and selfishness, but these are not sins peculiar to pastors and leaders and scribes. They're common to us all. All of us carry with us the old Adam, the flesh with all of its passions and desires. All of us can tend to like adulation and, and power too much to the point where we, we seek it above the glory of God and the good of others to, to the point where it becomes a driving motivator in our hearts for the things we do. And all of us, even if, if, if in seemingly respectable or concealed or clever ways, have disadvantaged others to our own advantage, like these scribes who devoured wi widows' houses. And Bruce Waltke, in his commentary on Proverbs, says that the difference between the righteous and the wicked is this, that, that the wicked disadvantage others to their own advantage, but the righteous disadvantage themselves to the advantage of others. That's the difference between the righteous and the wicked. And if that's the case, who among us, who among us can claim to have been perfectly righteous? Who among us can claim to have kept his way 
pure, who among us can claim to have loved God with all our hearts and our neighbors as ourselves? So for all of us, we should be most alert to the dangers of the scribe within than we are the scribes out there in the world. The great theologian and philosopher Jonathan Edwards once wrote that the genuine Christian is suspicious of nothing in the world as he is suspicious of his own sinful heart. The genuine Christian is suspicious of nothing in the world as he is suspicious of his own sinful heart. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? So for all of us, the scribes, those present-day scribes out there, there is equal footing at the cross of Christ. For us all, we, we stand in desperate need of a Savior who, unlike us, disadvantaged himself to the advantage of others. And most gloriously, in the cross. All of us need this Savior who kept his way pure, who loved God with all his heart and his neighbor as himself, but who also took on the penalty we deserve for not having loved as we ought. You see how Christ is, he's the photo negative in every way of these ostentatious, prideful, status-seeking, widow-devouring scribes. You see that instead of ascending to some high status in order to be seen and admired by others, he didn't descended from glory to the grave. Instead of remaining in this place of, of admiration where he was adored by the angels for all eternity past in heaven, he came down for us to be persecuted and spit on and flogged and crucified and killed. Instead of seeking status in order to be served by others, he took the form of a servant and being found in human form, instead of being self-promoting and prideful, he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. Unlike these glory-hungry scribes, he did all of that, not for his own sake, but for the glory of God and for us, so that we would be forgiven for our own pride and self-promotion and wickedness. Maybe you can see how that would change us from being the kind of people who promote self and glorify self to instead being a people who are humble and poor in spirit. If our sin and wickedness is so bad that it needed God himself to come down and be crucified on our behalf, then there's no room for self-glory or self-promotion in our lives. It completely humbles us. There's no room for self-promotion and glory in the Christian life. It's, it's unthinkable. Then it doesn't just completely humble us. It gives us a sense of dignity and worth so that we don't even need the adulation of others. It gives us a, a sense of dignity and, and worth because we've been, we've been so loved by God himself, and that's enough. That's where our dignity and worth comes from. And that's a dignity and worth that no one can add to or take away. It's fixed, firm, forever. And in this way, the gospel completely humbles us, but it gives us this great sense of dignity and worth. We sang earlier, two wonders here that I confess, my worth and my unworthiness. And this keeps us from being these scribe-like people who are prideful and self-promoting, who need others to prop up their egos. We don't need that. Because we have a Christ 
who has fixed our worth forever. And we are sinful enough to need his cross. So we can be freed from these heavy burdens of promoting and glorifying self like these scribes. You see how the gospel just changes everything for we who would otherwise be selfish and self-seeking. It does. It has. Continue to do so as we seek to be a gospel community. So may we heed these warnings. May we be wary. Or may we, rather, be we wary or all too willing. May we watch out for these sorts in the world. But may we be even more attuned to these tendencies within our very own hearts. Humbling ourselves before God. Resting in his grace in Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that you would seal this word upon our hearts. As we approach your table, cause us to be in awe afresh at the wonderful work of Christ on the cross for us. As he shed his blood, as his body was broken for us. Cause us to be in awe of this. Cause us to see here our worth and our own worthiness and to stand amazed. To be humbled, but to know that our dignity and worth is fixed in him forever. Remind us of this, strengthen us by this so that we can go into the world and represent our humble Savior well. In his name we pray.